Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 101 of the Speaking Club podcast. This week, to follow on from the last episode and segue back into this one, I have a quote for you from Mike Norton. Never say that you can't do something, or that something seems impossible, or that something can't be done. No matter how discouraging or harrowing it may be, human beings are limited only by what we allow ourselves to be limited by our own minds. We are each the masters of our own reality. When we become self-aware to this, absolutely anything in the world is possible. Master yourself and become king or queen of the world around you. Let no odds, chastisement, exile, doubt, fear or any mental viri prevent you from accomplishing your dreams. Never be a victim of life. Be its conqueror. I started this podcast for two reasons, because I want to help people recognize the power of stories and humor in speaking, and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organizations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, If you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Welcome to the show. This is the second part of my interview with master storyteller and award-winning filmmaker Mickey Lemley. In this show, Mickey shares more wonderful stories about his life as a storyteller, the subjects of his stories and tips for you as a speaker in moving and transforming your audience. If you haven't yet listened to the first part, go and do that and I'll catch you back here in a bit. Before we jump back in, I want to thank you for choosing the Speaking Club podcast. As ever, I hope you're enjoying the show and that it's helping you on your speaking and storytelling journey. If you've already left a rating or review on iTunes, thank you so much. If you haven't done that yet, I'd be so grateful wherever you are in the world if you could just take a few minutes to rate or review the show. That's enough from me. Let's go straight back to the conversation with Mickey Lemley. We all do that. It's all story. Yeah. It's all just a story that we tell ourselves. And then collectively we tell ourselves these other stories. And then it gets connected and and more and more people believe it. And then you believe it because, well, everybody else believes it, you know. Wow, it's fascinating stuff. And, and Joseph Campbell used to say, you know, all religion is metaphor. Yes. It's, it's all a metaphor. If you believe it, 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 that it's concrete truth, you get the fundamentalists and, um, uh, and you get into all of these, these kind of dilemmas. Like, was it really a virgin birth? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Every sixteen-year-old boy knows better than that. You know? So, so what Joe would say was: first of all, the the, the image uh, of a virgin birth—it's it, it, in multiple cultures around the world. Some of them preceding uh, the Christian story. And Joe would say it's a metaphor. It's not the, the a reality. He said it's a metaphor for the spontaneous eruption of spirit in matter. So it's like. How is it, and, and for those people that believe that when you're dead, you're dead, and it's all just material existence, you know, answer, tell me, how did Beethoven's Ninth come about? How did Van Gogh's paintings come about? 
they couldn't possibly just be created out of matter, you know? So it's that spontaneous eruption of spirit. Um, or as Joe used to like to say, you know, if, if Jesus died and ascended to heaven in three days, at the speed of light, he wouldn't be out of the galaxy yet. So where is heaven? Heaven's everywhere. Yeah. The metaphor. Heaven is everywhere. So, so, so you actually, you were, you, you were friends with Joseph Campbell? Or? Yeah, I was, I was very, very fortunate. Wow. And what, so what was he like as a person? Was he, was he an op- was, did he have those th- three characteristics, <laughs> optimism and, and those other stuff as well? Oh, he was fierce. He was fierce. He had a laser-like mind and would not brook silliness by anybody. Um, he was also a, a real old gentleman. gentleman. And, um, um, and he was just brilliant. He was brilliant. I, I, I spent a month with him once at Esalen. There were 10 of us, and we sat with him every day for eight hours, 10 hours a day, just listening to his stories. And wow. you, know, you could ask him any image, any mythological image. Yes. He would say, okay, well, this existed, you know, with the Hopi Indians, you know, and, and it's such and such a date. But the same image appears in Mesopotamia, you know, 2,000 years earlier, and then it's in Japan, and you can trace any image or any myth, any stories, and, 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 and so forth. And he would tell a story. When he would tell a story, you, your mind didn't wander to the past or the future. I mean, it was like he, he told it with such passion. And um, uh, when I first met him, I asked him, Joe, do you have a meditation technique? And he said, a meditation practice. He said, yes, I do. I said, what is it? He said, underlining sentences in books. <laughs> and then I said to him, Joe, is there anything in your life that you regret? And um, he, he said, no. He said, you really can't regret anything. He said, as Nietzsche says, it's a fabric. And if you pull out one thread, the whole fabric comes apart. And I thought, okay, I, I, I get that. I can work with that, you know. Wow. And then he got a faraway look in his eye. And he said, actually, not a day, not a week goes by that I don't rerun a certain race in my mind. And being a highly trained documentarian, I said, and what race would that have been, Joe? And it was the qualifying race for the 1924 Olympics. He was, he was a world-class runner for Columbia University. And I don't know if you saw Chariots of Fire. Um, yes, yes, absolutely, yeah. So there's this American guy named Schultz that the British guy that everybody roots for has to beat. And Joe used to beat Schultz every time they ran against each other. And in the qualifying race for the 24 Olympics, he, he went out. And they used to have guys at each quarter of the race with stopwatches. And they would yell out the split time to the runners. And the guy at the first quarter yelled out the wrong time. And Joe thought he was running slower than he was. So he picked it up for the next two quarters and had nothing left in the stretch. And Schultz beat him at the tape and went to the 24 Olympics. Oh, goodness. And Chariots of Fire would have been a whole different movie because Joe probably would have beat the British guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's played. amazing. <laughs> he, was, he was a world-class athlete, actually. Gosh. And uh, so then he went to Paris in the 20s and met Joyce and Picasso and all this stuff just opened his mind up to all sorts wow. of things. And I think, I think just for in case um, people listening haven't, listen to my previous episodes where we covered this um so basically joseph campbell found 
universal truths in storytelling across across whole co- uh, cultures and geographies and and came up with this hero's journey structure um that modern movies follow you know it's, it's basically the basic tenets of all storytelling i think all stories it's it, 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 it's in the book hero with a thousand faces faces that's right and uh seminal book and it's and it is exactly like you said it's it's just like this the the basic story outline of any feature film yeah that follows it cool now you said something just there in in that last bit that i wanted to just pick up on before i talk about your speaking um you said being a highly trained documentarian um i'd like to unpick that a little bit partly selfishly my my daughter wants to become a documentary filmmaker oh i've got a medical school <laughs> she's studying theology actually so she's oh, that, that's a really good place to get a job <laughs> yeah. i'm a theologian yeah. you see those want ads everywhere <laughs> so oh. she's probably doing the right thing but yeah so what what can i unpick that a little bit what would you say um are to be a highly trained documentarian what did you mean by that and, and what do you need to be um having in t- to be one well the best advice i could give her is to marry rich <laughs> that 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 would be the best thing um no it's it, you know it's just this intuitive sense of where's the story right what's what, what's what's going on what's happening now right now in this moment where, where's the energy in the room and, and, and being able to follow it. And the thing is, um, you know, you, you, you can plan for documentaries, you can do research and you have an outline and a structure. You, know, you, have, to, you have to do all that. Yes. Um, but w- when I speak to film students, I always, whether they ask it or not, tell them the one essential uh, aspect of being a, a filmmaker, which is you have to be willing to let go of your preconceived ideas. You don't have to do it, but you have to be willing to do it because it, 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 real life is more interesting than your idea about how it's supposed to be. But you have to get out of your own way to see what's really going on in any given situation and in any story. It's like, what's the real truth of, of, of what's happening here? Yeah. What, what, was, what was the space program really about? You know, um, and I don't mean politically, I mean spiritually. Yes. Um, how did how did it affect you know human consciousness? So you have to keep digging at that because your your first idea um, may or may not be the way it is, and and for a lot of filmmakers they go into it with such a strong idea of what it is that they don't see what's actually happening, so they they like force it, um, and and you can manipulate film. I mean, I, you can manipulate it to say whatever you wanted to say, really. Um, but but those films don't last because there's, there's no deeper human truth to it. Mm. So there's some writers that write what they know, and then there's some writers that write to find out what they, they, they think. Yes. And I, I'm that way as a filmmaker. I mean, I go into any new film with at, at, from curiosity. Yes. So, like, um, when I met the Dalai Lama, um, somebody asked him, they said, you know, do you hate the Chinese? And he said, no. He said, sometimes I lose patience with them, but I, I don't have any hatred feelings. And as a matter of fact, every day in my practice, I do a certain practice called exchange or take and give. I take their ignorance, their anger, their hatred, and I return to them in my mind 
uh, love and compassion. So I figured, I want to know how this guy does that. Because if he can do it with the Chinese who've perpetrated such atrocities on his people and on his country and his religion and culture, maybe I could learn how to do that with some of my family members. So, you know, it always starts out of curiosity. Cool. I have heard about this. I heard recently about this forgiveness meditation, actually. Um, I, I just heard, so it must have come from, from him originally. That's really interesting. It was have just you, a simple one. Seen, have you seen my movie, The Last Dalai Lama? No, I haven't yet, but I am going to be watching it, yeah. So for you're sure. in for a real treat. Yeah, both of them, because you've made two on, yeah, on I, Dalai I made, I made the first uh, major film about him uh, in 1992. It came out called Compassion in Exile. And no one had done a full movie about him. So I said sometimes, and he wasn't the world rock star he is today. Yeah. So I sometimes say to him, you know, you know, your holiness, uh, I made you who you are today. <laughs> he said, well, I, I did have 13 previous incarnations and the Nobel Peace Prize. And so I, have to, I always have to give him that. But um, How did uh, you get him to do the first film? I mean, how did that, how did that come about? Well, I first met him in 1984 at a conference in Switzerland, and I was just blown away by how he was not at all what I expected. He was, he was so funny and so human and, and so wise. Um, it was a big international conference. It was a week long and lots of important speakers. And at the end of everybody's talk, there was this one woman who would ask the same question of everybody which was, um, what do you think is going to happen in the world 50 years from now? And they would all answer. They were in a position, they were standing behind a podium addressing a thousand people and position of authority. And they would answer. They'd say, well, we'll probably have more of this and we'll probably have less of that and that kind of thing. Well, after His Holiness's talk, uh, she asked the same question, Your Holiness, what do you think is going to happen in the world 50 years from now? And he looked up and contemplated the question very deeply. And then after several moments, he looked at her and said, Madam, I don't have any idea. <laughs> Just giggled. He said, I don't know what kind of tea I'm having for dinner tonight. How am I supposed to know what's going to happen in the world 50 years from now? And he cracked up again. And I thought to myself, when was the last time I heard a political or religious leader acknowledge they didn't know something? And I couldn't think of a single example. So then, so then later I met him in a small reception and I was just overwhelmed by this presence that he has. You just feel it. It's palpable. And I'm sure your, your listeners have maybe met celebrities or political leaders that have the same kind of powerful uh, presence, but they'll look you in the eye. You're the only person in the room, but if you, you can see the wheels turning and they're thinking, who is this person and how can I use them for me? Yes. Yes. Right. That's that's what's going on behind behind their eyes. With the Dalai Lama, he's looking right into your soul, and he's thinking, "Who is this person, and what do they need? How can I help them? Wow. How can one, perhaps our only interaction in this life, how can I give them, you know, something that they really need?" So you're overwhelmed by the sense of kindness. So I, I started thinking about doing a film about him, uh, and um, then. Uh, I did these two movies about space. And uh, then I met with him in, um, he was staying in New Jersey at a monastery for a couple of days. And I met with him and pitched the movie. I mean, I was sitting right across from him and pitched the movie to him. And 
uh, he listened very carefully. And at the end of it, he said, do you think this is a worthwhile undertaking? I said, your holiness, if I didn't think it was a worthwhile undertaking, I wouldn't spend my time doing it. And he looked at me with those wonderful eyes. He said, you know, that's a very American way of looking at it. (laughs) (laughs) And he cracked up and he said, you know, um, what I learned after spending years with my Tibetan Buddhist friends is that to a Tibetan Buddhist, the most important aspect of any action that you take is what's your motivation. So the Dalai Lama said to me one time, he said, if you go on a peace march and you have anger in your heart, stay home. The only way to go on a peace march is with peace in your heart. And so what he was really asking me in that question was, what was my motivation for making the movie? I missed it completely, took it into my ego, and that's where I answered from. Uh, But since he's the world's most compassionate person, he had compassion on my total ignorance. And he said, okay, let's do the movie, but let's do it soon. And two weeks later, I was on a plane to to India. Wow. And, uh, And I researched, you know, how I wanted to make the movie and what I thought uh, would be good elements in it um, and how to, how to help him tell his story basically. Yeah. It's an interesting, cause I, I don't know, just I've heard uh, from, from people who um, talk about uh, other great uh, individuals like Nelson Mandela. And it sounds to me that the Dalai Lama has this quality as well. So that sense of humor and sense of self-deprecation and not taking themselves seriously. And I think that's magnetic beyond the charisma, that ability to be humble and make, you know, make people laugh and put them at ease is a very, you know, is an amazing quality to have. It sounds like he had it as well as Mandela. I wonder if it's synonymous with all of those sort of great individuals. Well, I've seen, I've seen him on stage with Desmond Tutu. And the two of them are like schoolboys together, <laughs> <laughs> giggling. And and at one time they're on the stage, and 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 Tutu elbows the Dalai Lama and says, "Look holy, the camera's on you." <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant, brilliant, cool. Right, I better get back to the speaking side of things now. I was curious. I mean, obviously there's the pitching uh, angle, but how does speaking fit into your work? since this is the Speaking Club podcast, do you do many talks um, about your, the stuff that you do? You know, when people ask me, I'm happy to do it. Yeah. I, I enjoy interacting with an audience. I love the Q&A. I love not knowing what they're going to ask. You know, it's so hard to make a movie. It's just, it, it's so difficult to make a, a good movie about something that's important. That that speaking is just another medium for, for the same interaction. Yes. Trying to, trying to, make people laugh, make them cry, and hopefully affect the, their lives for the better, you know, and give them, open up a window somewhere in their consciousness. Because there's an old Zen expression that the first step to enlightenment is when you realize things might not be the way you always thought they were. Yeah. It's like a little crack. The crack is where the light comes through. Yeah, Absolutely. Now, I had a question was how far does storytelling fit into your speaking? But I don't really need to. This whole interview has been one long story after another. So I can see it's you can't separate you and storytelling. I think it's impossible, isn't it? No, I mean, you know, uh, it's actually how I learn. Mm. It's, it's how my mind works. And it's not that's not it's not everybody. But I, I can remember verbatim stories people told me 40 years ago. 
verbatim, you know, and, and that's just how my mind apprehends information. If I like, uh, if I go to like the Dalai, uh, Dalai Lama teaching where he's reciting about texts and all that sort of things, I go to sleep because yeah. my, my, I don't, I don't get information yeah. that way. I get information by people telling personal stories about them, usually about themselves and wrapped in that story is, is what they're trying to communicate. And that's just how my mind works. And so that's also how I go through life. I just tell stories because that's how I see the world. But as I said earlier, I, I think we all see the world as story. Yes. Everything's a story. It's all a story to make sense of random phenomenon. We, we wrap it into a story so that we can understand it. But yeah. it's just a story. It's all just a story. Yeah, absolutely. It's, we, we, it's a human condition. We have to make meaning of things. And the way that we make that meaning is through creating and crafting a story around it. You're absolutely, absolutely right. Or, or, now, make, or make humor or make poignancy. You know, it's not just meaning. No. And, you know, the way we make each other laugh is very often through a story. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Right, I've got one more question. And I think, I mean, I guess there's things that you've said all the way through that are golden nuggets for people who, you know, want to speak, want to move an audience. But have you got some tips for public speakers around using stories and building a narrative? Uh, don't pick your nose when you're in front of you. <laughs> I think that's a good one. No, um, don't be boring. Feel, feel the audience. It's like you might think you're being very erudite and smart and that what your information is, is really important. But feel the audience. And as I said, offer things. Don't preach. Don't come, don't come out as if you have the truth and, you know, that you're going to put on a little train and send it to them and they're going to get it and think, God, that guy's really smart or that woman's really smart. Check out your motivation for why you're, why you're doing what you're doing. If it's ego gratification or if you want to prove to people you're the smartest person in the room, stay home and, and do humble meditation. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And I think the thing that you said just prior to, to, to that question was in terms of the, the way that you're moved is by personal stories. And I think for speakers, that is a goldmine that they need to tap into to move audiences, to to get people to understand the message. W would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, so many of these speak speakers, especially around in the, the consciousness world, the world of, you know, consciousness, it's yeah. like they sit there and, and, and they tell you the truth, right? It, it, to me, to my ear, when somebody is, pre that's like preaching, and that's like preaching dogma. Yes. And I, I can't tolerate that, let alone learn anything from it. And, you know, especially when, when people come off trying to be like, well, I'm, you know, holier than thou. And, and the thing is, after I made the first Dalai Lama movie that did very well, it was very successful, went all over the world sort of thing, I was approached by all of these people and, and the handlers for swamis and, and, <laughs> and, and babas and, you know, gurus and teachers. And, and, and they'd say, you know, we want you to meet Baba and, you know, and maybe make a movie about him. And I would always say, you know, this is not a spigot that I can turn on and off. I have to see how I feel about them in my heart. So they tell, oh, yes, well, Baba wants to meet you too or whatever. And I would spend some time with them. And if I got a whiff that they were promoting their divinity 
and denying their humanity. I was out of there. So, for instance, there was one very powerful guru who wanted me to make a movie about him. And his handler um, was pushing me to do it and so forth. And I said, you know, look, I'll, I'll do a long interview with him and then write a few movies and, you know, based on the interview. She said, would you uh, write out the questions and show them to me before? And I said, sure. So I wrote, I wrote out seven pages of, 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 of um, uh, questions. And this was at a beautiful ashram in India. I mean, it's beautiful, all marble and incredibly opulent. And I'd spent a few days just gathering information. And there's something that bothered me about it, but I couldn't put my finger on it because it was so beautiful and so well run and all that stuff. So, so she's going through the, 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 the day before the interview, she's going through the questions and she comes to the penultimate question and she covers her mouth and says, Oh no, 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 no. No one could ask Baba this question. And the question was, Baba, who around you can tell you when you've made a mistake? And, and she, nobody could even ask him that. So it was like that I, I got what was bothering me about the ashram and, and left the next day. Because how can you have an infallible human being? You know, this is where all of these, the movements that get into trouble with, you know, sex and money and all that stuff. This is where it happens, where you have a so-called infallible human. So when I went to do the research for the first Dalai Lama movie, and I, I needed to ask him like political questions and spiritual questions, uh, historical questions, personal questions, to hear in my ear how he answered them and to see how I could structure a movie, you know, with those kinds of stories. And the, pen, the penultimate question was, your holiness who around you can tell you when you've made a mistake. And if he said no one, I don't know if I could have made the movie. I didn't want to use my talent to promote mm. that kind of fascism, I guess, or leader or whatever. Mm. And um, so when I, I asked him that with trepidation at the end, at the end of the hour, and he said, he looked at me, he said, well, well everybody, he said, how else am I going to learn? Oh, that's rushing. It's, it's good to hear. It's reassuring. <laughs> but, cool. but, but, but if you get the idea that somebody thinks that they have the answer. Like, for instance, another another woman, I was approached by the handler for some woman who was writing about how humans ought to behave, right? It was one of those books, like what we need to do as a species to do better, right? And so the handler got in touch with me and said, we want you to meet this woman. And, you know, we want you to do a film about her and everything. I said, well, well for instance, how would you feel... If I asked her what happened in her two failed marriages and what was her part in it? <laughs> That's a valid question, right? Absolutely. If, if you have a theory about how all humans are supposed to behave, you know, validate the currency, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But, but that's, you know, that's what makes it human yeah. and not, not theory. Yeah. Gosh, because we're not perfect. I mean, we, we are flawed. As my friend Ram Das says, the first night that I ever heard him talk, the basic theme of his talk was that we're both human and divine simultaneously. And that we have to dance in, the, in this tension between the two. Mm. He said, the, the thing is, if you go too far into just being human, mm. as the Tibetan Buddhists will tell us, that life in an incarnation is suffering. You're going to suffer. 
right? Whereas if you go too far into the realm of being spiritual, you run the risk of forgetting your postal code. And at times that can become very useful. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Right. Thank you, Mickey. I've got some standard questions to ask you. If that's all right. Just a couple, a few. Um, first one, what's the best thing that speaking has done for you? Well, um, I, I can reach an audience mm-hmm. and, and at give and take, which is, which is very gratifying. And I, I learn what I think while I'm talking. <laughs> and, um, and the thing is, it's like my job is to tell stories that move people, that make them laugh, make them cry. And as I said before, hopefully change their life for the better. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter what medium I'm using, whether it's film or fundraising for the film or speaking before an audience. It's always the same. I love that. And have you had uh, a bad experience speaking and I only ask this because there's a lot of people who listen to the podcast that are just starting out and I I kind of ask this question because I want them to know that we all go through sort of bad experiences but it, it shouldn't stop us now maybe you haven't had one but possibly there is one where you go oh dear that didn't go so well well you know all every audience is different actually even if they ask the same questions it's yeah the the, the, the feeling is different the vibration is different you know sometimes they don't laugh as much as the, the audience the night before, you know, at things that are, that I think are funny. Um, I guess the, 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 the advice I would give to people is look at the reaction, yeah. pay attention, pay attention to the give and take, feel, feel, the, you know, feel what the audience is feeling. And um, it's like Philip Glass who did the music for two of my two Dalai Lama movies. I once heard him talking, giving a talk about art, and he said, you know, young composers coming up these days, they look at the three of us that have made it. They see the, the, the celebrity, the money, the venues, the, you know, the, the performances, and, and they want that. And he said, they're really destined to be disappointed because there are only three of us in a generation that, that make it to that level. So if they're focused on that, they're going to be disappointed. If they see their job as... Move, playing for an audience that that's their job then it doesn't matter whether there's 20 people in a church or five you know, five thousand people in, in the metropolitan opera house they're doing their job you know playing for an audience so i i feel like my job is to communicate these things that i've learned uh to the best of my ability to make as i said make people laugh make them cry and make them maybe uh open their minds to other possibilities and um, so it doesn't matter if it's talking to you or yeah. however many people you reach or yeah. or talking to you know, a few thousand people in, in a big auditorium. Well, that's brilliant. And just a couple of addendums I wanted to put into that. So if in those situations where you don't get the reaction from the audience that you anticipate – what is important is that you don't start telling yourself stories like Mickey said before, which then take you away from that, you know, that talk and being engaged with that audience. And I think the, the other thing that I always say, which is, I think what you've just said is that as a speaker, you, if you focus on being the vehicle for the message rather than making it about you, 
then you're always gonna you're always gonna be on the right track I think so thank you thank you for sharing sharing those but also pay, pay attention to the audience it's like absolutely it's not it's not just a canned act that you're doing because it'll no. come it'll come out stiff mm, absolutely so, you know, be, be re- responsibility comes from the ability to respond so just mm. be light, light on your feet yeah be present I think that's what you be yeah be present to what's yeah. What's going on? Cool. What's the one book that you've read that's had the most impact on your life and why? Oh, God. Really? <laughs> the first one that's brings to mind. It may be, the answer may be different tomorrow, but I always like to put people on the spot and see what comes to them to the surface. I'll do two. Okay. One is Letters to a Young Poet by Rilke. It's a wonderful, it's a very small book. Uh-huh. But Rilke was a great, great poet. And he gets a letter from a young man in his 20 who wants to be a poet and they correspond over the next uh, number of years. And the poet's filled with questions about how do you, how do you be a poet? You know, what is all this sort of thing? And you never see his letters. All you see is a collection of Rilke's letters that answer his, and you know what the, oh. question, you know what the question is because it's somehow in the, in the letter, but it's only, only Rilke's letters back and it's exquisite. Oh, I'll, put a link to that. I'll, I'll, I'll quote. I'll misquote something from it. Um, you you ask for answers, but you you couldn't live them because you're, you're you're too young. So rather than look for answers, learn to love the questions themselves, and live the questions. And slowly, at some point, you'll work your way into the answer. Oh, I love that. It's just brilliant. And then the other book I would say is Hero with a Thousand Faces. Joseph oh, yeah. Cool. And I'll put that in the, in the show note. Brilliant. Now, what's the best piece of business advice you've ever had and why? Well, buy Apple at 40. <laughs> and did you? I did. Oh, good. <laughs> um, no. Um, the best advice that, uh, that, that I, I give is be willing to let go of your preconceived idea and see what's really going on and be honest with just observe honestly with an open mind about what, what's really going on. And, and as I said, real life is much more interesting than our, our idea about how it's supposed to be. And it's really good. Actually, actually it's very good uh, relationship advice. If you have in your mind, an idea of how your, your partner is supposed to be to make you happy and they're not living up to it. Very often what you do is you torture them into trying to get them to do what you think you need for them to do to make you happy. Yeah. So, I mean, and, 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 and that way disaster lies, right? Yeah. I need you to be different than you are so that I can be happy. So you try to manipulate that person into being somebody that they're not. And, and it's the same with art. It's like you, you, if you try to manipulate it from what you see as the truth, or you're 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 not you're denying the truth or whatever, it's not gonna it's not gonna be rise to, to real art. Yeah, I love that, and it's it's taking responsibility for your own happiness as well, isn't it? In a sense, that is, you know, it's not. I I, I love that in terms of it's not your partner's responsibility to make you happy either. That's that's uh, what you're you saying know, as well. The, the divorce courts are filled with with people that live with that concept. Yeah. <laughs> like that. Okay, cool. Last question. If you could have one mentor, 
and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Are you kidding? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think it would be great to, to hang out with Beethoven. I mean, creating creating those symphonies and, and sonatas and when he was deaf, he couldn't even hear them. I mean, how brilliant was that? Right? Yeah. He heard the Ninth Symphony in his head. And he could, like, like I... What I do is I experiment. You know, I, I cut something, I look at it, I change it, I look at it, I look. I mean, it would be like cutting a movie when you were blind, you know? It's like, that. that's phenomenal. But of course, you know, it would be great to have met Mozart, you know? <laughs> what, a, what a fun guy he must have been, or, you know? Um, cool. No, we've not had Beethoven before. I'll take I'll take Beethoven. I think he he's he's he'd be a good person to talk to. But he might have been grumpy, you know. <laughs> he might have just been grumpy. But it would be it would be quite a, a cool person to have. Well, listen, maybe Harpo Marx. Why Why do you say him? Oh, I love Harpo. Everybody loves Harpo. Okay, cool. Make you laugh, that's for sure. Yeah, cool, Mickey. Look, it's been an absolute privilege to talk to you. I. I've enjoyed every second of it and I'm so grateful for you giving me your time and giving your time to the people that are listening. Now, if people want to find out more about your work or get in contact, um, where's the best place to go? Well, I have a website, lemleypictures.com and lemley is L-E-M-L-E pictures.com and actually all my movies are available there. You can stream them right from the website and my book and 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 more information about this stuff and then they they can write you know emails there's a email address there too brilliant and are you on social media at all mickey as well i am but i never look at it (laughs) that's fine so the website is the best place and i'll put a link to the website all the books that we've talked about and and yeah please go and check out that and I shall be having a look at the Dalai Lama film myself and uh, I'm really looking forward to that so just thank you so much again really appreciate it Mickey and um and what's what's the next project has you got anything in the pipeline um yeah I'm I'm just finishing a book um uh, advice to young filmmakers sort of along the lines of the Rilke book and um uh and I've got a short dramatic film I'm going to be shooting in Japan in the spring cool. about the first Westerner who ever learned Aikido, which yeah. is a, a martial art form where you can't take an aggressive action. You can only use the energy of somebody attacking you and turn it on them. Ah, uh, so defense, so defensive almost. Yes, but, but, but using their energy and turning it on them. Wow. That sounds fascinating as well. I love a bit of martial arts. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you so much, Mickey. Um, really appreciate, appreciate it. And uh, yes, good luck with the next project. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. It was really fun. Well, that was so cool. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I loved hearing about Mickey's work and getting a behind-the-scenes look into the world of documentary filmmaking. And if you didn't already appreciate the power of story, I hope that these two shows have opened up your eyes to what's possible when you start bringing stories into your speaking to move your audience. Please do go and check out Mickey's work. The links are in the show notes and drop him a message if what he said connected with you in some way. I'm sure he would love to hear from you. Thanks again so much for listening. I've got more great shows and guests coming. So please subscribe and don't forget 
to grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. Hey, if you're listening to the show because you want to start speaking or have a big talk or pitch coming up and you want to make it the best it can be, then you made the right choice because this podcast is the vehicle that can help you get there. But I wanted to tell you about something that will get you there even faster. Something that incorporates all the hacks, tools and tips I've picked up from my years in comedy, theatre, marketing and coaching. And that's my blueprint for creating and delivering a story-led talk that engages, inspires and converts. And the best bit is that I'll be sharing my blueprint and the mindset hack that will help you overcome public speaking anxiety in a free webinar masterclass. To register, go to thespeakingclub.com slash masterclass. This puppy gives you the soup to nuts for creating powerful talks that connect with and engage your audience every time. So grab your place now. That's thespeakingclub.com slash masterclass.